Cancer Care in the Era of COVID-19, a podcast from Queen's University Belfast. Hello and welcome to this panel discussion from Queen's University Belfast. My name is Morris McCartney and I'm delighted to be joined by two leading cancer specialists from Queen's and a pioneering patients advocacy campaigner to discuss cancer care in the era of COVID-19. Before we begin, as you can see, we're recording this under lockdown conditions, so please forgive any imperfections in sound or visual quality. So let me introduce you to our panel. Uh, Professor Mark Lawler of the Patrick G. Johnson Centre for Cancer Research is Associate Pro-Vice-Chancellor and Professor of Digital Health in Queen's. He's a leading figure in European cancer research, having steered the development of the European Cancer Patients' Bill of Rights and having been a driver of the All-Ireland Cancer Consortium, founded in the wake of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement. He's also a scientific lead in DataCan, the UK health data research hub for cancer, and we'll come back to that shortly. Professor Lawler, uh, good to see you, Mark. Very good to see you, Mars. Albeit remotely, again. <laughs> uh, professor Joe O'Sullivan is Clinical Professor of the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences at Queen's. Throughout his academic and medical career, Professor O'Sullivan has been committed to improving the lives of patients with prostate cancer through research and innovation. Since joining the staff of Queen's in 2004, Professor O'Sullivan has established the Clinical Research Programme in Prostate Cancer, which is now recognised as a centre of excellence and led a major technological development programme in radiation oncology. And somehow on top of all this, he manages to find time to release albums as a singer-songwriter. In fact, uh, I think there's an album that came out quite recently, isn't that right, Joe, with uh, proceeds going to uh, Cancer Charity? Instead of, many shade, instead of Many Shades of Blue, available now. There you go, very good. A nice little plug, thank you very much. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Mrs. Margaret Grayson, a retired radiographer who since 2010 has become a prominent and effective patient advocate in the area of cancer care. Mrs. Grayson's chair of the Northern Ireland Cancer Research Consumer Forum and works with Cancer Research UK as a patient advisor on their Grand Challenge research projects. She's also on the steering committee of DataCan and the public engagement and involvement representative. In fact, she was also awarded an MBE for her services to cancer research in, in 2018. Good afternoon, Margaret. Hi to everybody. Margaret, uh, maybe I'll start with you if that's okay. Um, you were a, a healthcare professional. Uh, but then moved around to the other side of the table, as it were. So how did you come to make that move? Well, that was because um, back in 2004, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And then I moved that chair from being on one side of it and within the oncology world to being a patient. Uh, and it is amazing how you walk into a room and because someone gives you three, says three words, like you have cancer, that you walk in a person, but then you, you walk out and you're a patient. And with that patient label becomes a level of vulnerability. It doesn't matter who you are, that level of vulnerability is there. Um, and while I understood that research happened and all of that, it was only while I was going through my own treatment that I realised every bit of my treatment had been determined by research, research based on data, whether it was through my, for my surgery, my chemotherapy, my radiotherapy, my drug I was on today. Um, and then I realised that's the way forward. So for my way of giving back, uh, once I retired back in 2010, um, I've been partnering with researchers and uh, just bringing that patient voice to ensure that research happens and research that benefits both people um, and the NHS. So that's how I came involved in this and I'm, I'm fascinated by the world of research. 
and how great researchers are. Excellent. Thank you very much. And, and speaking of excellent researchers and great researchers, um, Joe, you're uh, a practitioner as well as a researcher. But uh, how do you find it when these, uh, these patients come in and start to tell you how to do your job? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I really love the idea of shared decision making. And I, I really, you know, the old pater- paternalistic model of medicine where doctor knows, knows what to do and just tells the patient or and without really explaining it, I mean, th- those days are gone, thankfully. So I very much enjoy uh, when patients or their friends or family come in with not, not so much telling us what to do, but you know, inquiring about information that they've sourced, whether online or otherwise. And, I, you know, the patient themselves is an expert on their own life. I might be an expert on prostate cancer, and somewhere in the middle, we come up with a treatment plan that works for that person, fits their lives, and acknowledges that people are hungry for information. And so I, I must say, I really relish discussing those things with patients. Yes, sometimes people can be a bit stroppy when it comes to they think they know the right thing, especially with alternative approaches. But in general, it's a, it's very rewarding, and it's much more meaningful if the decision to treat. Uh, is something that's made jointly. I guess with uh, with you, when you've got an expert uh, patient advocate like Margaret, then that makes it all the better. Yeah, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go sparring with Margaret now. She knows way more than me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mark, you've been in cancer research for some three decades now. Um, I imagine there's been some pretty major changes over that time, uh, especially in the sort of computer era and the era of big data. And I know that's something you've been closely involved in with the development of the UK Data Research Hub. How did that come about and and what does the hub do? Yeah, I suppose I I came to Queen's about eight years ago and and one of the things that really excited me about coming to Queen's was it was a centre of excellence for cancer research. So that was the first thing that attracted me. But also there was a lot of data being generated um, in all sorts of different areas, genetics, uh, clinical care, etc. But one of the things I noticed that wasn't happening was we weren't really analysing that data very thoroughly. And so that was the exciting part that I thought was going to be important and maybe the contribution I could make uh, when I came here. And we've been very fortunate uh, in Queen's University, Belfast, to have really driven uh, a lot of the uh, work in relation to big data and its application in cancer. Uh, we were founder members of the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, and then also were one of um, six centres across the United Kingdom that's a Health Data Research UK uh, hub. Um, what's been particularly interesting in cancer, though, has been the recent development of DataCan, and DataCan is the UK Health Data Research Hub for Cancer. It's one of seven hubs across the United Kingdom that's focusing on really using data to drive a better understanding of disease, in our case cancer, but also to use that information for the benefit of patients. And that's been a really critical component of this co-working together of um, patients, healthcare professionals, researchers and industry looking to address common challenges that we're facing and using data really to drive change so that we can develop more effective diagnostics and treatment for cancer patients. It seems that uh, everybody is probably a bit more aware of how important data can be nowadays, you know, with the news always being full of uh, the graphs and and statistics about the spread of the COVID-19 disease. So, you know, it's an emergency that's affected all aspects of life and, and not least uh, cancer research on. And I know you've, you've got a new, pa- you and the, the team have got a new paper out on that issue. Could you maybe set out 
the general results or how you went about the, the research for that? Yeah, no, absolutely, Morris. I, I mean, it was really interesting. It started with the conversation I had with a, a colleague in Croatia, uh, Edward Vidoliak, and uh, he was highlighting a challenge that he was facing in his own clinic where in some situations, uh, patients were more afraid of a diagnosis of COVID-19 than they were of a diagnosis of cancer. And that got us thinking, and we, we published a, a sort of an opinion piece in the European Journal of Cancer, really highlighting what some of the issues were. But what we recognised as well was mo- one of the most important things was there wasn't a lot of data out there saying what was the effect of COVID-19 on cancer and on cancer patients. And um, so as part of um, DataCan and also with collaborators in University College London, we decided to actually develop a large study to look at data in the context of COVID-19 and cancer. And it was in two parts that the first part was actually to look at real data from uh, both early diagnostic referrals, which is a good measure of your early warning system for cancer. And then secondly, from chemotherapy appointments, because that's a good measure of how your health cancer health system might be working and worryingly we saw that and this was looking at uh, data from hospitals both in uh, England and in Northern Ireland we saw that cancer referrals so that early warning system was down nearly 76 percent on average between the different centers and then also chemotherapy refer uh, appointments were down 60 percent if we compared it with pre-COVID so that was really worrying because it was showing that patients weren't accessing the health services and also meant maybe that the health services weren't functioning fully. One of the unintended consequences of COVID-19 redirecting services to a COVID-19 focused service. And so that really worried us. And and then we also said, okay, let's do a modeling approach to actually look to see what, what is this going to mean Uh, this current crisis in relation to cancer and cancer um, uh, mortality in the future. And we're very fortunate to be able to look at a database of nearly 4 million um, citizens from England in primary care and use that database to actually model what would be the effect of the COVID-19 scenario. And we looked at modeling different scenarios and particularly looked at what what would be the most realistic scenario. We looked at whether 10% of the population was adversely affected by COVID-19, which is probably a low estimate. We looked then at 80% of the population being adversely affected, which is probably a a relatively high estimate. And then we went also for 40%, which we felt was probably a reasonable, maybe slightly conservative, but a reasonable estimate. And what we found was that when we looked at those numbers and if we just focus on that 40% number, we found that if we just look at incident cancer, so just new cancers, uh, we found that that would lead to about 6,370 excess deaths. So that's deaths that wouldn't happen uh, if COVID wasn't present. So if we compare with pre-COVID levels and if we look at both incident and uh, prevalent cancers, so new and existing cancers, that would go up to nearly 18,000. Um, so that's an incre- uh, really worrying statistic in relation to 18,000 uh, excess deaths f- uh, from patients living with cancer. What was also really interesting and something I think that's very, you know, very important was that about 8 out of 10 of those, so 80% nearly, 78%, uh, showed that they had uh, one un- other underlying condition, um, so what we call comorbidities. And they were ranged from cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, and diabetes. They were the four sort of 
key ones, but there are other ones as well. And so that sort of tells you that you know, you have a scenario where COVID-19 is affecting patients living with cancer, but not just in relation to their cancer, also those comorbidities. And that may be a good message because it means that if we can actually effectively treat a lot of those conditions, which we can, we can then potentially reduce that risk of mortality. Um, but certainly this data that we've just um, uh, put out in the public domain there last week is, is really important because we, we feel it highlights something uh, that we really need to address. Um, it hasn't been published in a journal just yet, has it? But uh, are you intending to publish it? In no, a... we, we put it up on uh, MedArchive because we really felt this data needed to be um, really seen by everybody, uh, including not only the public, but also policymakers. And then we've also submitted it to a major journal. Very good. I think we, we can probably put a, a link up to that on our uh, on the website when this eventually goes up. And uh, yeah, so just to uh, another, I suppose, thought that I had about it was, uh, I'm not sure, did you, you covered different types of cancer and, and were, there, were there different results for the different types of cancer? Yeah, no, we've, we've looked at all cancer mortality or excess risk of mortality. What we're now doing is, you know, like you looking much more specifically at individual cancers. I suppose one of the messages from the study is very much for patients or for individuals who feel they're at risk of cancer, that they have symptoms, for example, a, a lump on the breast or bleeding from the bladder or, or the rectum, it's to access your cancer services. That's really important. So we're really much emphasizing that message that it is important um, for citizens to access their cancer services. Mm -hmm. Margaret, I'm sure uh, you and your colleagues and the families that you represent are also finding this a very difficult time. And you know, I, as Mark is saying, I guess there's a certain fear out there of trying to access uh, health services. But maybe this is a this is the message it needs to go out. Don't be afraid. You better go down. I think it. Is, I think it is a big message, and I think it's really important that this paper was published not just in a in a journal that other people wouldn't see, but in been mentioned in national papers and everything. But I think there is a fear of um, accessing services. We've been bombarded 24-7 with information about COVID-19. We've been bombarded to stay at home and we're protecting the NHS, all of that. And so those are the messages and, and right messages, obviously, that are getting across. So there, there's the fear that people, if there's something that's not right about their body, that's different to how it usually is, there's a fear that they don't want to, first of all, bother anyone within the NHS because they're so busy fighting COVID-19, so they'll not bother them. The other fear is that they're frightened also of getting the virus. The fear of COVID-19 seems to have overtaken anything else that could happen to you as a person, whether it would be cancer, a stroke, a heart attack, whatever. Um, and so there's that fear that if they go anywhere near services uh, within the NHS, that perhaps they might be uh, prone to get the virus. And the other thinking is that GPs are not open for, for business. Uh, they're doing their business in a different different way. And so this has caused a great deal of concern. Many of the, the symptoms that people might have might not turn out to be, be cancer, but it's so important that they, they understand what is still available and that they go to see about it. And then there's the other group of people that I spend time with well, not anymore, but on, on meetings like this, um, who, who live with cancer, like myself, you know, and, and so things like 
my review appointment was very different. It was done by telephone um, two weeks ago. But for other people that live with a total fear of cancer coming back or metastases, uh, and they're, they're thinking, well, I'm not going to be getting that CT scan or that appointment isn't going to happen. And there's a level of fear uh, around all of it that people appear to be to be living with. And it's important that the powers that be understand that this fear, that there is this issue uh, that is around. I understand all of within oncology are working so hard and all whatever their job title is, is working so hard to give us services that are the highest quality. Um, but I think these these figures highlight something that needs to be taken in at probably a policy level, um, at healthcare level, who are all working very hard. But the fact that there could be 18,000 um, extra deaths within the next year we need to look at how we can turn that around. Big, big slots of people within diagnostic services, they're not being diagnosed on a weekly, diagnosed on a weekly basis. So those each week that this is not, that people aren't going forward, is adding the whole block up and becoming, the numbers becoming larger. Um, and so there needs to be a way of dealing with that whenever the services were coming out of what we call lockdown. So I would encourage people, please go and see. Um, you have concerns. People are there to hear and listen and deal with your concerns. And I guess uh, speaking of the fear that people have, the other side of it is that mental health is also a quite important uh, area to focus on. I'm sure you, you probably, you, you know better than I do, there are, there are support groups out there that people can turn to for help with their mental health as well. I think it's being, the other thing of, is being isolated. If you live with cancer, it's being isolated. It's for many people, it's the thoughts that are going around in their head and the ability to access many of the services are out there um, to just to be able to talk with someone, um, to share those thoughts with someone. But certainly, yes, the whole area of depression, the whole area of anxiety, of stress is obviously mounting up over these weeks um, for different people. All di we're all different. Not, not every patient is the same. We're all different. We deal with things differently. We have concerns. We have anxieties. Um, and they're real to us and need to be to looked at. Well, again, I think we can uh, probably put up a couple of links to support groups and so forth on our, on our website. So thank you for that. Yes. And uh, Joe, I guess, as I said, it must be pretty stressful for the doctors and health workers too. Are you and your colleagues finding ways to work through this? Yeah, very much. I mean, it's certainly stressful. The idea that, you know, we put more or less cancer service on hold temporarily. I think initially that was, you know, it's smart. We, put, we probably over-prepared in freeing up capacity within the health service and cancelling operations and postponing things, which up to a few weeks ago were absolutely essential. And now we're told wait, they can wait for a while. So that's been very, very hard and some very difficult conversations with patients explaining that, yes, we told you a few weeks ago you needed this operation, now we don't know when it's going to happen. Similarly, radiotherapy. So that's been tough. It's also been tough because, as Mark and Margaret both said, the cancer, the cancer population are particularly vulnerable for a number of reasons. They tend to be the older age group, they tend to have comorbidities, and of course, many of the therapies that we do actually cause the immune system to, to be weaker. Particularly, I'm thinking about chemotherapy, but also some types of radiotherapy. So I guess we had to 
in many ways over-prepare for this crisis because it could have wiped out a significant proportion of our patients. But right now, yeah, we've, we've had to find innovative ways of working. Margaret's describing a telephone consultation. Uh, I've just done a, a clinic this morning. It actually works pretty well, but it's no substitute really for the face-to-face -face and really engaging on a, on, a, on a personal and an emotional level with somebody, but it's a lot better than nothing, that's for sure. We're now starting to try and ramp back up our services. And as Margaret very clearly outlined, that's not as simple as just switching back on the machines and saying the patients come back in. There's a whole confidence issue now. People have been constantly told how dangerous it is, it is to be out and about, how they need to keep two meters apart, etc. So coming back into a healthcare environment, yeah, it's quite scary for people and it's gonna take a long time. I mean, I would think a number of years before people have full confidence to come back into the healthcare system. We have found innovative ways to make, so we've, some, some types of chemotherapy are just not possible to give right now. So some of the very immunosuppressive chemotherapy, especially where the benefit to the patient might be quite low, for example, in a palliative setting. But we've really tried to prioritize the, uh, our treatments with regards how, how important they are. Surgery, radiotherapy for curative disease, of course, adjuvant chemotherapy where it makes a meaningful difference to somebody's survival and then down the list to chemotherapy which was really aimed at pure pure palliation we've tried to find other ways to do that but i think we've got a very big job now to regain the confidence of the public i think we can ramp up cancer services gradually over the next month or two but it's going to take much longer to get back to where we were in terms of confidence mm -hmm. I, th I think uh, it looks as though you're actually in a, a clinical setting at the minute. Is that right? Yeah. You're, you're right, yeah. at the, the hospital. Yeah, I mean, life, life, life goes on. Cancer doesn't stop. And at the moment, while we've got a very much a paired back service, we still have many inpatients suffering from the effects of cancer or toxicity of treatment or, or, or dying from cancer needing palliative care. We still have clinics. We still have radiotherapy patients coming in. We still have chemotherapy patients coming in. And, and as I've been mentioned as well, because of people's maybe lack of ability to go to GPs, or at least perception that they can't go to GPs, we're seeing the consequences of late presentation. So patients, patients coming in more symptomatic than they would have been normally. So something, for example, a lump that they might have gone to their GP with, maybe they wait three, four weeks, then the lump becomes painful or bleeding. So we're, we're seeing the consequences of that as well. So yeah, for sure life goes on, but in general terms, I guess it's a lot quieter in the hospital now. We'd like to get it right back up to busy again. We're working on that. That's very. That's an interesting message. It's certainly, as a, a lay person myself, I wouldn't have got that impression from uh, the news reports and so forth. So there we are. Maybe it's good to get this message out. And um, I wonder, is it is also in terms of the regional differences? I know that the paper we we talked about is, um, I think, UK wide, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I wonder what the regional differences are like. Is it, is it um, particularly? Uh, for Northern Ireland in particular, what uh, is the situation particularly difficult? Or Well, one of the great things is we've actually been able to get data from all the trusts in Northern Ireland. So that's actually really good. And it's, it shows actually that our services are able to provide that data, which has been really useful for us. Uh, but I think we, we, we haven't been able to go into that level of detail at the moment because we're actually looking at collecting data from Scotland, for example, and Wales, which we don't have in the, stu it's the study at the moment. Uh, but the one thing I would say is that we certainly are starting to see 
sort of differences from socioeconomic um, background. And, and that's something that I think has already been highlighted in relation to COVID-19 recently in the um, uh, Office of National Statistics. And that's something that worries me as well, particularly with our work on cancer inequalities. We certainly do not want COVID-19 to also be discriminating against um, individuals. I'd say overall, Morris, though, in terms of the, the health service generally, I think Northern Ireland probably has coped better overall than the rest of the UK. This is from speaking to colleagues around, you know, oncology colleagues around the country, many of whom are actually working as frontline COVID doctors. And I don't think any oncologist here in Northern Ireland has been put onto the front line in the COVID wards. I think it's been managed by this, the, the standard acute medicine service and the standard ICU service. So if that's a measure, and I can tell you that in, in Northwest of England and London, many, many of my oncology colleagues are working in, in, in COVID ICUs. So I think we've, we've done better in that respect for whatever reason. Very good. Uh, Margaret, I, I wonder if from your perspective, in terms of Northern Ireland, if you were able to uh, talk to the powers that be in Northern Ireland, for example, um, the, the people up on the hill, up at the assembly there, um, would there be anything you'd be pressing them for, any changes you would like to see brought in? Uh, I would first of all want to thank everybody who has been working very hard, have to acknowledge what it must have been like for within the somewhere like the Cancer Centre, within all of the NHS, and for those who are making the decision uh, processes up on the hill, if, if you want to put it like that. Uh, but I would say to them, please be, be aware of how this um, data, the information that it shows to us. Uh, it's important that the services are put in within the cancer arena so that when we're starting, the pause is lifted on things like screening. Um, how do you then screen all the people who have missed the screening process while it has been paused? How do you get all of those services back in line again and pick up the people who have been missed? Um, so I think it's important that um, they, look at, they, they look at the data that has been used and that shows the benefit of having good data, but also having experts who are able to interpret that data. And that data needs to also influence policy and decision making. Um, so that that's really would be my message to them. Look at the, the what's it saying. Um, it means mon less money um, in the long run to the NHS if we look after our patients now. Uh, and that's important to me and to the population of Northern Ireland, really. So they have to take a strategic, long-term look at this and, and sort of you know, backfill. Um, how are we going to, to tackle this in the light of the, all the knock-on effects? But it needs to be not in two years' time, but needs to be looked at in real time now. Um, and things put into place to help those who are working on the ground with patients um, and within research. Joe, I, I take it you agree with that. Have you anything else that you would uh, ask our uh, political decision makers to do? Yeah, I think it's just like Margaret said. It's, a, it's an awareness that we've, we've created a hump in the system, basically, that the, between the screening the diagnosis of cancer in a timely manner, all the things which have slipped and pushed things backwards now, we're going to need a major investment in people uh, and equipment, etc., to catch up with that backlog, or else, as Mark's paper outlines, there's a risk that this will, this will translate into an even bigger um, mortality impact from the COVID crisis itself, from, from cancer patients. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there's been a, a sort of a hiatus in, in our normal, good, evidence-based 
uh, treatment of cancer or management of cancer and that we put the resources in to deal with that. In the same way you could put, you know, the, that resource are currently put into testing and building night again hospitals, the same type of initiative and the same type of effort is going to be required to play catch up. That once we get the virus under control and that it's at a manageable level, that then the focus has to be on then not just cancer care but also cardiovascular care, etc. The other acute medicines, me medical um, issues that are being put on hiatus right now. So I strongly agree. Mm. And Mark? anything to add? Yeah, I, I mean, I think very, you know, two messages. The, the message to citizens and to patients is to access your health services. If you're worried about your health, if you're worried that you may have some symptom of cancer, as Joe said, it, you know, it's, it's much better to do that early because if we catch cancer early, we can deal with it. Whereas, as Joe had said there, he's seeing, starting to see these delays in relation to cancer diagnosis or people presenting later. That's going to store up a, a significant problem for us going forward. Um, but if we're saying that patients and citizens need to be able to access the services then governments need to provide the, the appropriate resources for those services to actually be delivered at pre-COVID-19 rates. Because there's no point in having one part of the population saying, yes, I want to access these services if that service isn't being provided for uh, citizens and cancer patients. And I suppose as well, it's you know, critically important that we get real-time data so that we're actually able to not only at the moment show what's happening, but also start to develop the solutions and also measure the effect that our solutions have in relation to making sure that we don't see the excess mortalities that we're predicting or that we can limit them uh, to a certain degree. Well, uh, Professor Mark Lawler, Professor Joe O'Sullivan and Mrs. Margaret Grayson, thank you very much for sharing your expertise. Certainly, I found that a very enlightening and interesting and stimulating discussion. And uh, as I said, I think we'll be putting links uh, various links, including the one to your album, Joe, uh, on the uh, website. <laughs> thanks, 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 Mark. Uh, thank you very much for uh, your expertise and insights, and best of luck with your ongoing work. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, and stay safe. For further information, visit qub.ac.uk/slash coronavirus.